Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. How and by whom are those materials harvested? These are the kinds of stories that I think people will become more and more interested in. And I think in particular, the medium of fashion and textiles really lends itself to sharing those stories. That's Petra Slinkhardt, Director of Curatorial Affairs and the Nancy B. Putnam Curator of Fashion and Textiles at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Petra joined PEM in 2018 following her role as Curator of Costume at the Chicago History Museum, where she worked with a collection of more than 50,000 examples of fashion and textiles. At PEM, she develops exhibitions, installations, and programming celebrating the global impact and reach of fashion and textiles and oversees the museum's newly opened fashion and design gallery. In her role as Director of Curatorial Affairs, she oversees the integration of PEM's exhibition research and curatorial teams and develops departmental priorities and the strategies to deliver them. Petra is a graduate of Indiana University Bloomington, where she earned a Bachelor of Science in Fashion Merchandising, a Bachelor of Arts in Art History with a concentration in Modern and Contemporary Art, and a Master of Science in Fashion Textile History. Her book published this past spring, The Women Who Revolutionized Fashion, 250 Years of Design, was published by Rizzoli Electa. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Max. It's a pleasure to be here. Your book reveals a long-suppressed fact that many women designers went unheralded, as in the case of Anne Lowe, who designed Jacqueline Kennedy's wedding dress, but lived out her life without recognition. Can you share some other examples of unsung heroines in the fashion arts? Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm pleased that you would call out Anne Lowe because she does have an extraordinary story and certainly designed for you know many a well-known client in the United States. And so for her name to not be known as well as that of her peers, and I would include Christian Dior among her peers, is the heart of this project that we have done. And as far as other designers that maybe haven't received the same or maybe their proper due. The list is long, but to name a few people, I would say that mid-century designers in the United States, but the movement towards sportswear was absolutely led by women. Of those women, Claire McCardle certainly is one that stands out as the best known, but she was surrounded by uh, innovative women such as Bonnie Cashin, Tina Lisa, Rosemary Reed, who was Canadian but worked in the United States. But then even going back a little bit further to Maria Galenga, who is a contemporary of Mariano Fortuny. And even Fortuny's wife, Henrietta, who very much influenced his designs and his process, has not received the credit and the recognition that she deserves. Petra, your exhibition at PEM, in connection with this book, developed out of a 2018 exhibition at the Kunstmuseum Den Haag called Femme Fatale, Strong Women in Fashion. Can you tell us how that collaboration with The Hague unfolded? Yes. Well, first, I'm very grateful to our partners. This exhibition was supposed to open in May, but of course, because of the global pandemic, that was no longer an option. And they were very gracious in allowing us to push our exhibition opening out six months. So we do open November 21st. But the collaboration came to be actually through social media, of all things. Prior to my work at the Peabody Essex Museum, I was at the Chicago History Museum. 
which is a social history museum. And we had already begun in 2017 looking to 2020 to plan out our exhibition calendar. And we're toying with this idea of doing the Year of the Woman, because of course, 2020 does mark the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And so I had been working with my partner there, Jessica Bouchure, on crafting an idea on women in design. And then my life changed. I moved jobs. I moved states. And I thought, well, that was a great idea, but it's not going to happen. Until one night I was scrolling through social media and my counterpart at the Kunstmuseum, Natalie Froche, had posted an image of a stack of books with the binding visible. And she said, stay tuned, project you know, coming. <laughs> and she had used the hashtag strong women in fashion. And so I sent her a message and Madalif and I had never communicated before. And I just said, you know, can you tell me more? And she did. And so we arranged for me to go and visit the Kunstmuseum and see the exhibition in person. And I said to her, you know, have you ever thought about traveling the show? Have you ever worked with the U.S. institution before? The show was going to travel, did in fact travel to Belgium, but they had not worked with the U.S. institution before in traveling a fashion exhibition. So from that conversation, a partnership evolved, and we are essentially borrowing 60 pieces from the Kunstmuseum. We are augmenting with 25 pieces from the Peabody Essex Museum collection, borrowing a few pieces from the MFA Boston, the Chicago History Museum, and have been working with two private collectors. The other component of why I feel like the Kunstmuseum has been such a wonderful partner is that they fully understood my desire, our desire to sort of beef up the American component of this very important story. And so while designers like Claire McCardo were a part of their installation, their focus, of course, was much more on European designers. And so they were very accommodating in allowing us to add works from whatever designer we thought would help round out that narrative. And then also for us to include contemporary works, because it was very important for me to take this through the 21st century into really, I think the most recent piece that's on view is a recent acquisition to Pam's collection by uh, Jamie Akuma, who is a native artist, and her ensemble is from 2018. That hashtag of your Dutch colleague that inspired you to write her again reminds me that when we worked together at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, you introduced a new generation of visitors to fashion design as a political arena with the exhibition Body Unbound. I was hoping you could recap how you came to see clothing design through a feminist lens. That was a great show. Body Unbound was an exhibition that was curated by Neelu Paydar, the current and was then as well, a curator of fashion and textiles. And Neelu and I worked on that show together and it was drawn entirely from the Indianapolis Museum of Arts collection based on recent acquisitions. It was exploring a variety of themes that pertained to women's bodies and fashion, almost as a political catalyst for moving women forward. So I think the show opened with a monokini by the designer Rudy Gernrich, and it is a topless bathing suit that in and of itself is a very powerful piece, and we paired it with a very cheeky photo of a woman wearing it at a public pool. But then the exhibition went on to explore aspects of fashion design or themes in fashion design, such as underwear, outerwear, 
are looking uh, at designers like Terry Mugler, who is really, in a way, forming a woman's body in an overt hourglass shape, but really seeing women as the arbiters of their own bodies and their own style and taste in tandem with these fashion designers that were really pushing those boundaries. And with Gerenreich, which was an eye-opener for me as a radical designer, I think you bought some of those things with Nilu online, right? On eBay or you found them yeah. in unconventional places. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, um, I still tend to scour unconventional places for works of art because particularly when it comes to clothing, it's interesting to note how different people value what they have. And that is in no way to say that, you know, any alternate market other than auction, mm -hmm. it doesn't denigrate the status of an object. But I do think that, you know, sometimes people don't necessarily know what they have. My first collections committee meeting at the Peabody Essex Museum, I was speaking with our committee chair and I had purchased a dress for this exhibition by Tina Leeser. And I said, oh, well, you know, it was about $650. And he was sort of taken aback and he was like, that's all? <laughs> I said, yes, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because to a lot of people that, of course, is a substantial amount of money. And I want to, you know, recognize that. But in the art market, it is really kind of peanuts. But yeah, we did actively, Neela was very interested in Rudy's work and we were actively building a collection of his work during my tenure there. And it was really exciting to be a part of that because Rudy himself was a dancer and he was very interested in liberating the body from constraint, but was also one of the first designers to really push this notion of genderless fashion, which of course now in 2020 is no longer something that is viewed as abnormal, but is starting to become accepted as the normal. You mentioned that your appetite in collecting takes you in lots of places. So I'm curious how you define fashion for the museum. What are some of the kinds of works, for example, that you collect now that might surprise our listeners? You know, my curatorial practice is really grounded in trying to provide museum goers, researchers, scholars, fashion enthusiasts with an alternative there are phenomenal collections in this country, such as the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, of course, LACMA, the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and institutions like the Peabody Essex Museum, or you know where I was working previously in Chicago, we will never be those institutions. And for me, that's absolutely okay, because I don't have any interest in trying to duplicate what already exists in those museums' collections, because for the most part, as collections become more accessible online and shared through a variety of other formats, such as blog posts or podcasts, it's really about the stories. And so while I know that we do have a collection of, for instance, Charles Frederick Worth at the Peabody Essex Museum, what makes our pieces unique are that they have been altered and that they are not in pristine condition. But for me, that's really where the value and the story of the object resides. And so in collecting 
in the last year or so that I have been at the Peabody Essex Museum, we have focused on trying to not only fill gaps in our own collection, but to almost look at a national survey of collections. Where are people not collecting and how can we as an institution help fill that national hole? And so, you know, certainly in tandem with my colleague, Karen Kramer, Fashion and accessories by Native artists is paramount. Working with my colleague, Dr. Siddharth Shaw, looking at the work of South Asian designers is certainly another area in which we're hoping to continue to explore. But then also looking at that balance between international, national, and local collecting. So, you know, drawing out stories that represent fashion and in some cases retail history of New England, of Salem, or, you know, within the United States. Petra, you arrived as the first Nancy B. Putnam curator of fashion and textiles at PEM, which was a marker of sorts about the importance of a collection of fashion, but I'm not sure that's how they defined their collection before. What did you find (laughs) on arriving at a museum, which is a successor to the East India Marine Society established in 1799 and one of the oldest museums really in the world? (laughs) <laughs> well, yes. So I am the first Nancy B. Putnam Curator of Fashion and Textiles. And I feel very fortunate to carry that title. The museum, as you said, founded in 1799, has undergone many iterations and has evolved as an institution because essentially there were two institutions, separate institutions. There was the Essex Institute and then what began as the East India Marine Society and then evolved into the Peabody Museum of Salem and then in 1992 uh, merged into one museum. So what you essentially had was two disparate institutions with very different collecting missions, but were both very interested in a humanistic approach to exhibition and to engagement. One of the first objects to come in through the East India Marine Society is a shoe. I think it was one of the first 800 objects that was cataloged by the society. And meanwhile, you have the Essex Institute, which is acting, uh, founded in 1821, was acting as the history museum for the county of Essex. So through the Essex Institute, we have a multitude of fine clothing, clothing that you might find in other historical societies that sort of represent the upper echelon of a particular community. But because through the 1980s and through the 1990s, that institution really did take on more of a social history focus. You know, we have Star Wars t-shirts and we have a fantastic collection of shoes. New England, of course, was the seat of the shoe making industry in the United States for many years. And so when that industry started to evolve and change, we were granted a large donation in 1977, which accumulated to about, I think, 4,000 examples of shoes from all over the world. Whereas as the East India Marine Society continued to evolve, the focus was much more on looking outward. And so the tenant for being a member of the society was that you were a sea captain, that you Hmm. rounded the Cape of Horn and the Cape of Good Hope, and that you collected objects that represented the people with whom you were in touch, people with whom you did business. And so through those collecting efforts, the museum has an extraordinary collection of Korean fashion and textiles, of Chinese fashion and textiles, as one of the only museums in the country to specifically have a department dedicated to Asian export art. 
We have some really wonderful examples of clothing and textiles that came in through that particular lens. So when I arrived, I was sort of overcome. The collection is enormous due to merging those two institutions. It has exceptional range. It's one of those collections where I think has been truly a sleeping giant for so long. Because as the museum started to evolve from 1992 to now, the collection was used in part, but much of the focus was really on hosting traveling exhibitions. And it really wasn't until 2015 um, when my colleague Karen Kramer did an exhibition entitled Native Fashion Now did I think we really started to see the value of drawing from our own collection to create these narratives from our own fashion collection, I should say, Mm -hmm. uh, to create these narratives that I think would be of interest to people, but are also different than what you wouldn't find in other institutions. Petra, how do you balance the responsibilities you have around the fashion arts with the field of textiles? And just tell us a bit about what the textile collection consists of. The textile collection is also wonderful. We have an extraordinary quilt collection, which is not that unusual in museums like ours. But my colleague, Paula Richter, did a wonderful project with the Massachusetts State Institutions called the Mass Documentation Quilt Project. And it really enabled her to dig into our collection and not just do a cursory cataloging of those pieces, but to invite almost sort of a precursor to crowdsourcing, but to invite quilt experts into our collection to do a deep dive analysis of all of these textiles down to the number of stitches, which is quite extraordinary to have that kind of information for our quilt collection. But in addition to that, our textile collection runs the gamut. We have patchwork quilts that were collected in the 1990s in rural parts of China that I think from the standpoint of many institutions and many collectors would have been totally dismissed as common everyday objects. But Nancy Berliner, who is now the curator of Chinese art at the MFA Boston, I think really embraced this perspective of collecting objects that represent the everyday and amassed this wonderful collection of these patchwork quilts that now I think are starting to take on different significance as we now 20 years or so later have an opportunity to kind of dig in and think about honoring the stories that are attached to objects beyond the pristine. We have a wonderful, robust collection of Chinese quilt covers that were made and printed during the Cultural Revolution. So there's this really interesting combination of iconography that is political in nature, but also melds traditional motifs and patterns into that visual language, if you will. One of my charges when I arrived as the fashion textile curator was to work with Paula Richter and Linda Hardigan, who was the deputy director and is now working at ROM, was to open our first ever gallery dedicated to fashion and design. And that was an interesting and complicated project because on the one hand, it was very liberating because the entire museum's collection was at our disposal to draw from. But of course, with that, it's an overwhelming amount of material and you know how to sort of hone in on creating a balanced narrative that 
draws in textiles, draws in fashion, contemporary and historical from a variety of cultures, and integrates decorative and industrial design all within one narrative. And so balancing my focus on fashion and textiles really sort of depends on what projects we're working on or what might be of particular note. We just received a grant from the NEH to rehouse our bark cloth collection. And so those kinds of moments, I think, offer an opportunity for us to say, oh, well, we do have this wonderful bark cloth collection. You know, how can we now, since we're getting it all out of storage, we are documenting it. How can we then take it that step further and share those collections, you know, whether in a digital fashion or in person? What's fascinating to me is it's a discipline that you've been part of for years, but there's really only a handful of museums, leading museums in the country that have major, major collections, let alone a director of curatorial affairs in the field. So what's it going to take for fashion arts to be accepted as no less integral to art history than other more widely accepted fields? Well, a simple answer would be time and exposure. You know, I think that the day of putting a, a runway work on a mannequin to just be admired simply for its beauty. I will never say that that will not be something that people are interested in, but I do think that people are hungry for more, hungry for more information, hungry for alternate narratives. In part, that's sort of what really drew me to this current project, made it the women who revolutionized fashion. When we look at a platform, for instance, of 20 or so objects, one or two might be those show-stopping, extraordinary pieces. And so there's that glitz and that glam that kind of draws you in. But the other objects that accompany those showstoppers are a little bit more everyday, a little bit more approachable. And I think that those provide visitors an opportunity to sort of see themselves as a part of the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And so kind of breaking down those silos and breaking down those class hierarchy uh, as it pertains to fashion is one way in which I think it will begin to become more embraced by collections in our country. I'm wondering what you think of a trend lately in which museums of all kinds, even those without major collections, have been installing what you described, mannequins with dresses on them, in and among galleries of painting and sculpture. Is that a trend you embrace? Does it risk making fashion arts more of an adornment, like art in bloom, like floral arrangements? What do you think of it? I'm of two minds on this topic, because as you point out, it's a very slippery slope. As someone who studies fashion, it does irk me or bother me to think that we would include works of textiles or of fashion or accessories as window dressing to sort of stage another component of art. But I think as a companion, as a way to provide context, I think it could be really strong. So for instance, there's a Sargent exhibition that's opening at the MFA or another museum in our area, the KPN Museum did a Winslow Homer exhibition. And there, I really felt like it added to the narrative and wasn't necessarily just being used as window dressing. But I do think that, you know, as you point out, it requires thought and care to present those materials in a way that doesn't 
lessen the importance of, mm. of fashion or textiles as accessory. You know, it, yeah. I think it really does have to be appreciated and presented as its own work of art among other works of art. So thinking about it more from the perspective of this is an interdisciplinary show versus this is a painting show and we're just going to throw some dresses in there to, you know, kind of liven it up. (laughs) Yeah. I'm wondering about another thing. Textile conservators have to cope with wear and tear in a way that's very different from paintings conservators because people often wore the works that you collect. What are some of the things you've learned from textile conservators over the course of your career? Oh, so many things. Yeah, I definitely have to do a a big shout out to all of the conservators who I have worked with and all of the textile conservators out there. It is not easy work. It is tedious and it is time consuming and it is all engrossing. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that to put on a fashion exhibition or even to mount something for photography, there is the conservation component. So really stabilizing a garment, understanding how it comes together. But then there's also the mounting aspect. And I think really as artwork is concerned, that is a specialization <laughs> that mm-hmm. you know is required for fashion and textiles. I think to a degree that far surpasses that of putting something in a frame or even making a mount for a sculpture because it's really about anatomy you know understanding the human form and you're essentially building a substructure to support this work of art one project that i did in chicago an ensemble by the designer mainbacher whose company was Montbochet, a beautiful printed 1930s gown And it was clear that it was missing its belt. And because the print was so specific, we were never going to be able to find a match. And so working with our photographer, the conservator there took very detailed photographs of the length of the dress and then basically went about testing a variety of different color combinations or colorways on a variety of different fabrics to achieve the right sheen and the right color match to recreate a belt. And so for a visitor, you see the dress and you think, oh, that's beautiful. And you never give it another thought. But for us on the back end, you know, this was just phenomenal because not only were we able to use science and technology and a way to understand how we might solve this problem, but, you know, the sense of satisfaction to really be able to complete ensemble is a great feeling. But I think that that's ultimately my biggest takeaway from textile conservators is that they are the ultimate problem solvers. And I think this, of course, can be applied to conservators across the board. But in fashion and textiles, I truly believe that there is so much out-of-box thinking that is required in order to achieve the results that we typically do. Speaking of -of out-of-the-box, we've all watched as Black Lives Matter has made museum professionals rethink their obligations. So I'm wondering how it is affecting curatorial thinking at the Peabody Essex Museum. It is. We have a new director at the Peabody Essex Museum, Dr. Brian Kennedy. And in the last 18 months, our staff, our board, our members, and our community have been working on a strategic plan, first on our annual plan and then a five-year plan. And in those conversations, we have been talking about the collection that we have, the history and, and the way in which it has been interpreted and presented, acknowledging moments where we should have done it differently. And in looking toward the future, 
really coming together as a curatorial team to better understand what are the stories that we haven't yet told and that our collection lends itself to telling, but more so what are the stories that are not present in our collection and how can we be better about actively engaging members of our community and pursuing works of art that help us tell those stories. Across the country, it is imperative that museums are changing the way that they think about collecting and the presentation of objects, but I think that that extends to programming. We do have a new director of civic engagement, which speaks to the way in which we're looking toward the future and looking to create genuine and authentic relationships with people in our community, but also being able to be a place, a location that provides space for other people to tell stories, that it isn't just about us telling stories, but it's about us welcoming people in and offering them an opportunity to join us and to help lead us and teach us as well. That interest in social issues now bearing down on museums, you've been part of, you've been very adventurous in presenting fashion beyond the moneyed system of fashion houses and runway shows. I'm wondering what the discipline's goals in museums are as you track changes in an increasingly global industry in fashion, including our obligation to acknowledge unfair labor practices. Yeah, that's a great question. That actually takes me to a show that the VNA did entitled Fashioned from Nature. And while it wasn't specifically about labor, it was about the materials that we harvest in order to create fashion and textiles. And sort of a sub-conversation or a subtopic to that is, of course, inevitably, how and by whom are those materials harvested? These are the kinds of stories that I think people will become more and more interested in. And I think in particular, the medium of fashion and textiles really lends itself to sharing those stories. Petra, wrapping up, do you do you have a dream project that you'd be willing to share with us? <laughs> Where do I begin? Um <laughs> So I have lots of projects that I kind of rattle around in my brain, um, but I've also been really fortunate to be able to work on great projects. But one, and this actually takes me back to our time in Indianapolis, um, I think, oh, oh gosh, I don't even know when, but at some point you and I had an opportunity to meet and you were asking me as a, as a young curator, you know, what what I was interested in working on. And one of the projects that I had presented in that conversation was showcasing the work of an Indian contemporary designer by the name of Manish Arora. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that when I was interviewing for my role at the Peabody Essex Museum, the deputy director then, Linda Hardigan, asked me, what is it that you want to work on? And I said, I really want to work with Manish (laughs) Arora. Um, And then my colleague, Dr. Siddharth Shaw, was hired as our curator of South Asian. And he was still in London and I was transitioning from Chicago to Salem. And so we were in contact, never had yet met. And he said, you know, well, what are you interested in working on? And again, I said, Manish Arora. And he said, are you kidding me? He said, I want to work on Manish Arora. Um, And he said, that was actually something that I pitched in my interview. And so here is this kind of moment of... um, (laughs) serendipity, where these two new colleagues, he was hired a month after me, came together to the same institution with a very similar idea. So luckily and gratefully, um, we were able to reach Manish Arora, and we are hoping to work on a show with him that will open at the Peabody Essex Museum in 2023. Uh, So I would say that, you know, as far as immediate dreams are concerned, that's one that I feel is within reach, um, and I'm very excited about it. 
That's great, Petra. Well, listen, thank you for spending time with us today and sharing a bit about the plans you have afoot and some of what you've done. And it's been great catching up with you. Thank you. I appreciate the time and um, the offer. We've been speaking today with Petra Slinkard, Director of Curatorial Affairs and the Nancy B. Putnam Curator of Fashion and Textiles at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you like what you heard, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find their way to us.